Welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. This is honestly one of my favorite Sundays of the year. I feel like everyone has slowed down a little bit and we just get to talk and see how people's holidays were. So I'm really excited to be here this morning um, and talk to some of y'all. So we're so glad that you're here. And if you are a guest with us today, whether you're visiting with family or just visiting um, as someone who's lived around and wanted to walk in for a while, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Today we are still celebrating Christmas. You see, Christmas is actually a 12-day season that begins on December 25th. So during these 12 days until January 5th, we herald the fulfillment of God's promise of a Savior. So yes, that does mean that we leave up our decorations until January 6th, which is Epiphany. This morning, we will continue that celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ, the light into the world. I found a quote from John O'Donohue earlier this week, which I found to be especially meaningful. He said, at Christmas, time deepens. The Celtic imagination knew that time was eternity in disguise. They embraced the day as sacred space. Christmas reminds us to glory in the simplicity and wonder of one day. It unveils the extraordinary that our hurried lives conceal and neglect. We have been given such immense possibilities. We desperately need to make clearances in our entangled lives to let our souls breathe. Might we find space this morning, today, or this week to let our souls breathe? Let's worship God together by singing a song of Christmas, How Great Our Joy. the sheep we watched at night, glad tidings brought, an angel bright, how great our joy, great our joy, 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 praise be the Lord in heaven on high. There shall they born, so he did say, in Bethlehem a child today. How great our joy, great our joy, 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 joy. Praise with the Lord in heaven on high. Praise with the Lord in heaven on high. There shall the child lie in a stall, this child who shall redeem us all. How great our joy, great our joy, 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 joy. 
gift of God will cherish well, that ever joy our heart shall fill. How great our joy, great our joy, 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 joy. Praise with the Lord in heaven on high. God of our lives, we praise you and we lift you high. We lift you high with the expectation that in your lowliness, in your humbleness, you have brought true life into our lives. Thank you for the gift of Christmas. Thank you for the gift of incarnation. And in your leadership, as we follow you all the way to the humble places in our lives, help us appreciate that. Help us journey boldly into that humbleness. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap sleeping? Angels greet the anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe the son of Mary. Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian, fear for sinners, hear the silent word is pleading. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold, and and king to own him, the king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this the Christ, the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him, Lord, the babe, the son of Mary.
finding you have always been here god of the faithful god of the seeker help us find you Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, dwelling in this hope that sustains my belief. God of the doubter, God of the seeker, help us meet you. A reading from the book of Luke. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your redemption, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce, your own, will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phemuel, the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. A reading from the book of Matthew. Now, after they had left, the angel of the Lord appeared to the Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated. And he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. This, this is, is the, the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord.
I thought it was on. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. So the question that is listed there in your worship folder uh, is, how do you typically feel after Christmas? Joyful? Worn out? Worried? Hopeful? And then kind of the follow-up there, looking back over the season, what made you feel this way? So we want to take just a minute um, and, and kind of see if anybody has anything they'd like to share in that direction. How did Christmas make you feel this year? And what were maybe some of the things that were built into that? It's a pretty deep question. When I first wrote it, I was thinking more like a time of reflection than a time of response, I'll be honest. So let me ask, let me ask another question. How has Christmas and your response to it changed over the years? Maybe since you were a kid or younger. How is Christmas different for you? In the good ways and bad. I can share a little bit about that. Um, and I'm here also to bring the mic to you if you have a response. Um, but I can share a little bit too. Um, Something, as a kid, I never, you know, that, I don't even know what song it is, The Weary World Rejoices. What song is that? Oh, Holy Night? Yes. I would hear that, and I didn't really know what it meant. And as I've gotten older, I kind of feel like I've understood more of what that meant, and I've been able to kind of lean into that. Um, and really, despite all the weariness in the world, and despite the struggle um, and sadness that I have personally felt sometimes, I've been able to rejoice um, in light of that weariness. So that's been something that's changed for me as I've kind of grown up a little bit. That's great. Um, what has really changed for me was expecting and experiencing Christmas as someone who just received something from someone who had to pay for that something to be given out. So Christmas has definitely been an, an opportunity for me to reflect and be grateful for what God has done for us and for our family financially. Um, I just didn't realize that Christmas just involved so much money, I guess. Christmas feels different when you're paying the bills, especially in January. <laughs> It's a long story, but I'll make it very short. In the mid-teens, I got to the point I didn't want anything to do anything with the Christian faith. I began to doubt, uh, and something happened with my brother that I began to think more seriously. Then in simple faith, I erased those doubts and trusted Christ. Now, because of that emotion of doubt that I went through, the first Christmas and the first Easter afterward took on a different meaning. Periodically, when I become spiritually dead, I forget the meaning of Christmas. And then I reflect back when I, before I accepted Christ, and the, 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 the joy of Christmas and of Easter comes alive again, I reflected those moments. Thank you, Tom. 
Any others? Bear with me, I'm gonna try not to cry. Um, this year, Christmas for us was a lot different than it has been ever. Um, Christmas as a kid and even as an adult before this year has always felt kind of like a really big deal. And it's really, really just extravagant and, you know, not like it's extravagant in the world, it's, 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 a big, it's a big thing. And this year, it was a really, really intimate sort of deal. And just thinking about the way the very first Christmas was, the very first Christmas wasn't extravagant or a big deal. It was probably the most intimate situation in the Christ story. And so that was something that I've kind of been reflecting on. That's true. That I love so much that we're here at Calvary and my sister, my family in, in the flesh. I want to thank something. Thank God I prayed for something that it happened that I wanted. And God does hear your prayers when you ask him with his name in his name. JP had been out of work for a while and he needed now to inspect his his vehicle and he didn't have good tires. And I asked God, is there a way that we can pay a little at a time and get the tires? And God answered my prayer, yes, there is. Go to you and you don't have to pay very much, just a little bit each month. Thanks be, thanks be to God that we're as a family came together it's already been two years that my brother was incarcerated and got out and has been doing very well ever since. And there was another prayer of my mother that was answered by God that he'd get out of that place and she'd get to see him. So that was very, uh, very beautiful that God has and is always doing miracles in our lives. Thank you. Thank you, J.P. Leva.
several undeniable facts, um, the first of which actually changed because we were asking this question, what has changed about you at Christmas? And I realized this morning that one thing that has not changed about me is the way that I snicker when the word ass is printed in the worship folder, <laughs> even if it's in the context of a Christmas song. A few other facts I would share with you this morning. Uh, number one, which is now very obvious, I am not Mary Alice Birdwhistle. Uh, number two, I will not be singing as a part of my sermon. Now, this is in the likely event that you would all retreat from the sanctuary the moment I did so. Uh, number three, the lectionary text for this week is a really difficult text. To be honest, it's not really the kind of text we like to think about right after Christmas, and yet I wonder if the discomfort in that experience is exactly what makes this text so important to hear. A final fact is that on Friday, Jason Sudeikis had a really rough day on social media as a direct result of punching Baby Yoda. If you're not familiar with that fact, it's likely that you have not been watching Disney Plus's new series, The Mandalorian. Now, for the Star Wars purists out here in the audience, I would like to first point out that Baby Yoda is not actually Yoda as a baby but just a baby of the same race as Yoda. One more fact, he or she is adorable. So adorable, in fact, that Din Djarin, a.k.a. the Mandalorian, who was originally contracted to kill the wide-eyed green character, instead decided to save the child and subsequently protect it from any number of vicious bounty hunters also hoping to kill the child. So my question is, how could the cuteness that inspired Din to abandon his guild and his way of life, put his own friends at danger, not at least keep Jason Sudeikis from punching the kid? It may sound like a trivial and even a little bit wonky Star Wars question, I'll give you that. But I think it speaks to a dynamic made clear in our text today. Our response the world around us, to the events around us, often well up from our own experiences, from our place of power or lack thereof, from what we have to gain or what we have to lose, or in this case, what we have already gained or what we have already lost. For Din Djarin, the Mandalorian, is himself a foundling, an orphan, who was saved by, protected by, raised by, and ultimately trained by the Mandalorians, Baby Yoda is something like himself. He sees something of his own story in the child. Baby Yoda, though an incredibly capable force-building baby, is still a child, still vulnerable. For Jason Sudeikis, who is actually playing a stormtrooper, it's not just Jason Sudeikis there on screen, he's scared of his superior. He's trying to not even look at the child, and I should mention he's a really terrible shot with a blaster. But for him, there is none of that emotion that is drawn out of him in meeting the child. So when the child makes a move or a noise, he just goes ahead and punches it. And I won't ruin what happens for you, but you are safe in assuming that punching Baby Yoda is a bad idea both on Earth as well as in the galaxy far, far away. 
Church, I, th- I think we all recognize that our response to Christmas is often complicated, particularly if you're the one paying the bills in January, as we just talked about. But beyond that kind of peace, there's this myriad of emotions that are attendant to Christmas. Joy, loss, loneliness, happiness, grief. And those aren't individual emotions felt by individual people. Those are the gamut of emotions that all of us as individuals can experience this time of year. Today we're going to focus on the first Christmas and how several characters in the biblical text responded, not to the holiday that we now celebrate, but to the incarnation, that seed of our holiday. In Luke chapter 2, magi from the east appear in Jerusalem, asking where the child is who has been born king of the Jews. The problem is that the man that they are asking is the current king of the Jews. Mary Alice is going to preach on this text next week, but I do want to point out that here in Matthew chapter 2, the text tells us that King Herod was frightened, along with all of Jerusalem. So we have to ask the question, why would they be afraid? What would they have to lose? How could the arrival of a baby create such fear in Herod that he would respond as he does? For that sad story, we look a little further, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 2. Joseph, as we read earlier, was warned in a dream to take Mary and the child and flee to Egypt because Herod was going to seek to destroy the child. And so they go down to Egypt. The the Magi, meanwhile, have met baby Jesus. They've been warned in a dream to go a different way. And in verse 16, Herod realizes what has happened. And the text says that he is infuriated, exceedingly angry. So Herod decided to send soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every child under the age of two, both in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area. Maybe you're wondering, why would we be talking about this on the first Sunday after Christmas? I think there's something important about remembering this story and telling it over and over again, particularly in this moment after Christmas. Because it speaks not only to the response of the world, to the incarnation, but also our own response to the incarnation, our own response to anything that makes us feel deeply threatened. You see, Herod stands to lose a lot. He's the puppet king of Rome, and his reign has been fairly lucrative for both the elite in Jerusalem and for his own family. The fact that he is precise in his reaction, he doesn't just kill all the children in Bethlehem and the surrounding area, only those ages two and under, according to the time the Magi had told him, speaks to the fact that this is a specific removal of a threat to his power. But it's not just Herod's power. The entire power structure of Jerusalem that is organized around his reign included the religious structures of Jerusalem. Those are threatened too. His position keeps the Romans at bay and allows those religious leaders a certain level of freedom to run things as they see fit. 
Not only that, it was Herod who had been bankrolling the restoration and the expansion of the temple in Jerusalem. And so to protect himself, to protect that power, conspiring together with that power structure, Herod lashes out and kills innocent children. Here the innocents are merely the collateral damage of a system that is fighting to retain its power. See, here's the thing. And if you don't hear anything else, maybe this is the most important thing this morning. The incarnation is a threat. Maybe Herod recognized this better than anyone else. The incarnation is in some sense a threat to us all, to that part of us that is connected to the world. The remnants of the empire and the Mandalorian don't want to kill baby Yoda because he's adorable. They want to kill him because he is an existential threat to them and to their power. The incarnation of God and Jesus is a threat to those in power and to the structures which they have built and which sustain their power. The incarnation is a threat to the status quo, to the way things are. Things simply cannot stay the way they are in light of God becoming man. Really, I want you to think about this. What king on earth would countenance the threat represented in God becoming human? Power. How does God becoming human threaten the way we think about and wield power when the incarnate God accepted death on a cross? Status quo? How could things stay the way they were or the way they are right now when the incarnation reveals what true humanity looks like? Ambiguity? The Jewish people's understanding of the categories of God and human were very clear. God was God. People were people. People were never God. And they likely learned that lesson very deeply in the roots of their memory coming out of Egypt. But Jesus is not binary. He does not fit such categories. He transcends them. How could all our neat categories and well-defended notions of who is in and who is out, what is right and what is wrong, what is holy, what is not, not be upended by the blurring of lines when God becomes human. Church, the incarnation is still a threat today to the powers of this world, to the way that things are, and to the categories and the labels that we have created for our, de- for our ideas and for one another. It's why the early church fought so long and so hard to make Jesus a little more God or a little more human. Because there were always those that wanted to remove that tension. That wanted to get rid of the ambiguity. Because if Jesus is truly God incarnate, what might that mean for you? What that might that mean for me? So we want to eliminate the threat. I want you to note here, that the innocent children who died do so at the whim of a power structure trying to hold on to its power. And I believe we still know something about that kind of suffering, not only of adults, but of children. And not only in all of the world, 
but very near to our own. Thankfully, this is not the only response in the text of the Incarnation. In Luke 2, Jesus' parents took him to the temple to be presented and to make the proper sacrifice according to Torah. Now, I don't have time to dwell on this, but I need just a quick parenthesis, if you'll forgive me that. Earlier this week, this is not a, a political statement in any way, shape, or form. It's a biblical one. Earlier this week, Pete Buttigieg, you don't know if you saw this, made news because he put out this quote on Christmas Day about Jesus being both poor and a refugee. And there's this conservative blogger, Matt Walsh, who kind of jumped on him about those ideas. But if Matt Walsh, or if you yourself, don't believe that in fleeing for his life from political violence, leaving his home country and having to live in another country doesn't make Jesus a refugee, then you should really go, Matt should really go and look up the definition of a refugee anywhere. Google it. And not only that, if Matt Walsh or maybe yourself don't think Jesus was poor, then you should take the time to look up what we might call the economic sliding scale of sacrifices and see where the offering of two turtle doves fits into that sliding scale. Okay, that's the end of that parenthetical rant. I appreciate the space. After they had made the sacrifice, Joseph and Mary and Jesus were intercepted by a man named Simeon, a man whom the text tells us the Holy Spirit rested upon and who was led by that same spirit to Mary and Joseph and Jesus. Unlike Herod, Simeon does not respond with fury, but with joy. In what we now call Simeon's song, he reflects on the fact that he may now be dismissed in peace from this life, because he had been promised by that same Holy Spirit that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. He also names the idea that Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. There's also a prophet there in the temple that day, a woman who spends day and night worshiping and fasting in the temple, who upon seeing the child, Anna rejoices and proclaims his presence to all who are seeking the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, it's easy for us from this distance reading the text to just assume that both Simeon and Anna are already on Team Jesus, that unlike Herod, they have nothing to lose as a result of the Incarnation. But I want you to listen again to their story. Echoed in Simeon's praise is his own mortality. I'm going to be honest with you, if I found out that I would not die until I had, after I'd seen the Lord's Messiah, I would do my best to avoid the Lord's Messiah at all costs. And instead, Simeon goes looking for the Messiah. From the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, the writer has been preparing the way for the mission of the Gentiles, which will not be fully manifest until Acts chapter 10. But here, this notion that Jesus will be a light to the Gentiles is conspicuous from the lips of Simeon. Do you recognize what kind of revolution and religious imagination this thought pretends? 
Struggle and pain are also echoed in Simeon's words of blessing to Mary, that the child would be a part of the rising and falling of many, would be a sign to be opposed, and that Mary's own heart would be pierced by a sword. Can you imagine if that were part of the baby dedication liturgy at Calvary? It would not go over well. No one would ever want to have their child dedicated. And what about Anna? What does she have to lose? Well, just the entire institutional structure in which she has spent most of her life. Because Jesus will soon say that he supersedes that temple in which she has been fasting and worshiping. So the question for us, church, is how did they do it? How could their response be so different from Herod's? How could they see beyond the real threat posed by the incarnation to the promise that it held? Ultimately, in the Mandalorian, Din Djarin recognizes that the child is a threat not only to the empire, but even maybe to himself. But he also comes to understand that his care for the child is not a rejection of the codes he lives by, but their fulfillment. Simeon and Anna somehow have the space to see beyond their own self-interests, beyond the worldview and the religious culture of their day. Put simply, their faith in God is in God's faithfulness, which extends beyond those self-interests and worldviews and cultural mores. The thing is, the incarnation is still going to upend their world, and in spite of that, or perhaps because of that, they embrace the threat to the power structures of their day. They embrace the threat of change to the status quo. They embrace the ambiguity that is intrinsic to the incarnation. My question for myself this morning and my question for you what does the incarnation bring out in us? Fear that we might lose power or control? Fear of ambiguity? Of uncertainty? Of a lack of clarity? Or does it bring hope? Hope that redemption is real, that salvation is true. Hope that all our limited ideas about who God is, all our distinctions and barriers will someday pass away and we will know God even as we are fully known. The incarnation does not stop death. If anything, the incarnation underscores death as it is surrounded by death in the text. And yet, too, the incarnation transcends death. So that death may remain the great unknown, it is no longer a period at the end of a sentence, but an opening to something more, not less. The incarnation is an opening to something more more, not less, no matter how much it seems it might cost. I don't know where you are on your own journey this morning, 
I don't know what the Christmas season has brought out in you. I don't know what the idea of incarnation pulls forward in your mind or in your heart. But if there is a prayer that, that you have need of, our ministers will be in the back. Um, this is something you'd like to talk more about. We'll be happy to talk more with you. Thank you for being with us this morning. seas of trouble roll, and faith has feared the master's word, false peace upon the soul. Oh, sing a song of Calvary, its glory and
Let's pray. Father of lights, giver of every good and perfect gift, as we reflect upon this year that is coming to a close, we declare your goodness and faithfulness. Whether our circumstances have been easy or difficult, we give thanks that you have met our needs day by day and in more ways than we can comprehend. So as we bring our offerings before you, we ask that you bless them and multiply them for the glory of your name and the expansion of your kingdom here on earth. With confidence and hope, we look ahead to what you will do in us and through us in the coming year, both individually and as a church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God all creatures here below. Praise God above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and I think I have the microphone figured out. Just a
few quick announcements uh, before we're out today. Uh, one, I know Phil would want me to mention and just say thank you so much to the Calvary family. I don't know if you've been watching that budget number, but it's shrunk by like 90 some odd percent over the last few weeks. So we were down to just needing about $4,600 to make budget for this year. And to that end, if you have gifts that you want to give, you're in giving, that needs to be postmarked by December 31st or to the church office by noon on Tuesday, because the church office will close at noon on Tuesday. Another announcement that I wanted to make sure everybody heard about was that we learned this week that Tanisia is going to be resigning from her position. I believe it's effective January 6th. If you don't know Tanisia, she's our office manager. She's here throughout the week. She is amazing, and that is going to be a tremendous loss. I would also ask for patience in that transition, because we may not be able to figure it all out really quickly. Um, so we'll be looking for a replacement for Tanisia, but we want to thank her for her service to this church and all the things that she's done over the past year to help us make Calvary happen. The last thing there, the end of year office closures, we, again, we will close at noon on New Year's Day, and we will op- we'll be closed on January 1st. We will reopen at our normal time on January 2nd. For our spoken benediction this morning, I have a, a prayer that we use on pilgrimage when we take students that I would like to share with you. So we'll share those words now. God be with us in every valley. Jesus be with us on every hill. Holy Spirit be with us on every stream, every cliff's edge, every green pasture, every moor and meadow, in the crest of the waves on the sea, each time we rest and each time we wake up. God be with us every step we take. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.